Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Miles. I'm Chen. And I'm Anthony. In this rare double feature chat, Alex catches up with Keith Kaisershot to talk about his joining the Maid, the game Deep Sea, the Apple Pippin, playing with John Romero, and many, many more topics. This is a rare double wide interview of 40 minutes long, so we're going to keep our segment a bit short and just let them do the talking. This is a great chat, and we really enjoyed listening in. Hello, we are back with Keith Kaisershot. Hey, Keith. Hey, Alex. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, good to talk to you, despite all of the uh, crazy COVIDs. Keith, you've been with the museum since almost the very beginning. How'd you find us? Uh, I had moved to California in 2011, and the the game studio that I was working with at the time, uh, I had a couple of friends there that one evening they said they were going to head into Oakland to attend a talk given by R.J. Michael of Amiga fame. And I, I had heard of that name and I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. I didn't know he was in town. Uh, so I thought, hey, could, could I go with you and check this out too? So I, I hitch a BART ride with the t- uh, my two buddies and we go to this uh, third floor office, you know, space in the, in the heart of Oakland, downtown, uh, late evening, it's dark outside and it's, it's this empty, mostly empty room, but with shelves of old video game ephemera, you know, the artifacts and things like that. And I thought, what is this place? Like, how did, I mean, it makes sense to me how they got RJ Michael to, to talk, but what is this place? What, how can I, how can I get involved? It seems like a really cool place and somewhere where I would kind of feel at home and where I feel my talents could be useful. So uh, that night I got to know Alex and basically introduced myself as, hey, I'm I'm kind of really, really interested in, in vintage Apple, vintage Macs. And I see that you are trying to start up a museum uh, based around you know, vintage video games. And I wonder if you know our, our uh, if the Venn diagram of my talents and what you need for the museum, if there's maybe an intersection there, if I could help out. And uh, uh, it seemed that you were on board with an idea. And I guess that's, <laughs> I, that's kind of how I got involved. And you've been helping out incredibly uh, a lot of our projects ever since. I mean, from the Doom Cluster to the, the first thing, one of the first things you did was set up Robin Arno's uh, Deep Sea, was it? Deep Sea, yes, that's what that's what it is. Yeah, and in fact, um, uh, the maid actually has the original Power Mac G5 that he developed Deep Sea on and used for um, uh, administering demos over the years as he was developing and uh, showing off that project, and so. Excuse me. Uh, the and the main, headset and the whole headset. Even. The headset and the the custom mask that Robin built for it that has the the two microphones built in. That one of them uh, is near your nose, so it tracks you breathing, so it can tell whether you're breathing or not, which is an integral part of the game and, and the experience. Yeah, no, the the whole point of that mask is so that you feel like you're underwater because you hear that exactly exactly that darth vader yeah yeah <laughs> do you want to explain what the game is nobody here w- would have ever heard of it or i mean the deep sea you know the the high concept of of deep sea is that you know you're you're at the bottom of the ocean it's pitch black you can't see anything and there's a deep sea monster after you and 
since there's nothing else but you and this monster, it can hear everything. Like, it's very attuned, because there's nothing to see, so, you know, the rest of your senses are heightened. So this monster can hear everything going on, including your breathing. So you're in this deep-sea sub, and you're trying to hunt the monster before it gets down to you. So it's it's a, it's an audio-only version of Hunt the Wumpus, <laughs> if you're familiar yeah, but it has with a that joy- game. Yeah, it has a joystick. Yes, yes. So so you you imagine yourself in a sub deep at the bottom of the ocean again, you know, where you can't see anything, but all you have to rely on are audio cues. So mm-hmm. you can hear the monster going around you, going behind you, going in front of you, kind of rushing by. And uh, the joystick is all you have to defend yourself. So you can rotate your sub and fire... Uh, I believe all you can fire is missiles. You, you can't no, just no, do like pings. torpedoes. Torpedoes, torpedoes. Yeah. yeah. And if you miss the monster, well, then you don't you don't hear it. But if you hit the monster, then you know it, it lets out a cry of pain, right? And so the the goal is to hit the monster so that it doesn't get to you. But this entire time, you find yourself holding your breath because as you're breathing, you know you make you release bubbles, <laughs> and, and the 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 monster can hear you breathe, and so it uses that to kind of echolocate where you are, and you don't want that, obviously. So, I think the real key to the success of, of Deep Sea as as an installation as as a game, and and notably a game that blind people can play, is the fact that Robin Arnault is an audio designer. So the audio in the game was of like movie quality. Yes, definitely, and I believe. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong on the history here, but I think our, uh, I think Robin was uh, still a film student uh, when he developed that. Was he? Pro- oh, I, don't know. I think so. I mean, this he's is, gone this on... is a while ago, I think, around 2010, 2011? 2011, 2012, yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe he, he was very... just out of film school. I can't remember. But uh, no, I, I mean, Robin has got a professional background and professional training on this. So, I mean, it's no surprise that the audio is phenomenal. Yeah, and it sounds like the, it's it's this big whale thing coming at you. There's sonar pings, there's bubbles going off, and then you hear like the the ticking of a of a, a teletype, and like people, <laughs> oh, the monster has arrived. Right. Ah! I remember, I remember um, uh, watching at the maid, you know, somebody demoing this game, watching somebody else play, and uh, towards the end of towards the end of the game, I think they were so. Uh, startled by it that they just ripped the headphones off and ripped the mask yes. off. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's incredibly immersive. Like, yes, it, yes. It was, Very yes, visceral. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, then you also set up the Doom Cluster for us so John Romero could stomp noobs at GDC. <laughs> uh, that was that was a case of the right place at the right time. Uh, I was in between um, uh, video game gigs and you know, I had about like, six months between January of... 2014 and the summer of 2014 where I was just kind of experimenting with VR and trying to figure out what what was working and hey could I you know maybe make it doing VR games for a living uh spoiler no <laughs> but, <laughs> but GDC was uh during that time in March and I remember Alex I remember you you reached out to me because John Romero was going to be at GDC I think it was some kind of anniversary for uh, the ni- 2014 would have been the 20th of Doom 2 yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, there we go. Yep. So John Romero wanted to set up this area, GDC, where you could challenge him to deathmatch. And for the uninitiated, that's just something that you, if you know what's good for you, you'd never challenge John Romero to a deathmatch. Yeah, it'd be like Mike Tyson saying he'll fight any, any and all Yeah, comers. yeah, yeah. I mean, if you come at the king, you best not miss. So, yeah. <laughs> so we set up about six to eight 
uh, low-end, you know, Dell laptops because Doom runs on anything. It doesn't matter. Oh uh, no! What, what what I I went to weird stuff and we had a budget. Oh man! And weird I'm, stuff had a bunch of Windows XP laptops for two hundred bucks a piece. Way way overpriced. Like those things were worth twenty bucks. But I love weird stuff. So we. Spent I, our money miss weird stuff. I miss weird stuff. I miss weird stuff so much. Um, but yeah, those those machines we set those up, and they were they're very easy to set up and very portable. So it was great yeah. for out, us because you know in and out of the of Moscone West, and mm. we're we're ready to go. Um, but and, no, and we, Ra- Razor threw uh, keyboards and mice at us too. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. That's right, and headsets. Yes, and headsets, and then they're all plugged into these night like two thousand one <laughs> Dell XPS laptops. <laughs> the juxtaposition, you know, the disparity between this modern equipment, brand new equipment from Razer, and these ancient laptops. Right, um, and they still work. And honestly, that one thirty three machine was blazing for Doom. Oh yeah, it's it's overkill for Doom even. Um, but no, we that happened the entire week, Monday through Friday uh, of the conference, and uh, I remember setting up on the server machine uh, demo recordings. So we got yes. recordings of everybody playing all through the week. And then when the conference was over, uh, I, th- I remember getting in touch with you and saying, hey, you know, I-, I recorded the entire set. What do we want to do with these demos? And he's like, put these on YouTube. This <laughs> is going to be great. People are going to want to watch this. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, honestly, that one of those, we put up like 20 videos, but honestly, the one of them is our most popular video by a long shot on the Maid's uh, YouTube channel. And, you know, keep, keep in mind that the Maid has like the original episodes of GamePro TV shows, Second Take, and like some some unseen footage stuff. But this, those videos have like almost 100,000 video views. People love that. Mm-hmm. I mean... People love to watch John Romero poning noobs. What can I say? <laughs> what do you remember when you played against him? <laughs> um, my my biggest memory of of that week was uh, it was Tuesday morning. Uh, I got there bright and early to set up all the machines, and of course John was there waiting. Uh, he's waiting for you know in case anybody was also showing up early and wanted to play, which happens some of the days, but this Tuesday I was the first one there. So I thought, you know what? Sure. We'll, we'll kick this off. So I said, Hey John, let's, let's jump into map of one of, of doom two mm. and kind of do a warm up match. So we get into it and uh, I'm actually doing pretty well. I've got maybe about 10 frags on him. It was about maybe 10 to one or two or something like that. And mm. I got cocky. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I turned it was best out of best out of thirty I want to say yeah I no, 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 it had to be like twenty to ten you had to be above by twenty yeah points, something right? like that I think it was yeah and so I'm I'm besting him by about ten points and I turned to John and I'm like what's the matter John I thought you were good at this game you gone soft us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, John did not like that at all. Uh, <laughs> he went from he went from smiles on his face, having a good time, to throwing his headphones on, serious poker face. And <laughs> at that point, I instantly regretted saying that because he proceeded to wipe the walls with me in no short order. <laughs> he went right for the BFG every time, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> rocket yeah, to no. the face after rocket to the face. <laughs> no, a lot of people were commenting on him going right for the BFG and using the BFG out of the gate and how that wasn't fair, but... Like, I mean, it's I mean, in the game. All is fair in deathmatch. <laughs> yeah, it's in the game. But it was, he specifically asked us to, to set it because Doom Deathmatch was like, it's like tennis or something. Like, you have to win by a certain amount, right? Like he had to have 20 more kills of you in order to win. And he had no problem doing that to everybody. I mean, oh, yeah. It's not like it was five to six or seven to eight or 10 to 20. It was 
20 to nothing most of the oh, time. Yeah. 20 to and negative 6. I also remember the the map set that we chose uh, was most, if not all, maps that he worked on. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah. I know you did that for a reason. And yeah. so so I'm looking here, and actually the most video, most popular video from that set has 203,000 views. Wow. That's a, and that's the that's the longest one. That's the forty two minutes. Oh, okay. There's one that's an hour. But that's wow. a that's a lot of noobs looking to learn from the master. They certainly are. <laughs> They're getting owned, and that that watching that is uh, joyous. So, I wanted to turn now to uh, the work that you have done to preserve an absolutely. Uh, I, I I rarely call anything in the museum horrible, but your work to preserve an absolutely horrible video game console. <laughs> Which one would that be? Oh, why don't you say <laughs> because, the word? I don't want to say it. The maid has a number of them. <laughs> well, yes, but there's only one that the developers had to crash in order to get it to quit their game and restart to the menu. Oh, you must be talking of the Bondi Pippin. Yes. Oh, I noticed you take uh, Apple's name out of it. Yes. Uh, so, so that's 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 a pet peeve of mine, and I just want to start by kind of uh, uh, kind of clearing the air in that. Um, a lot of a lot of folks on the internet like to describe it as the Apple Pippin, and I don't understand why. Because it's the operating system. There are no Apple logos on the Pippin unit. There are no Apple Certainly. logos okay. on the controller. There are mm-hmm. no Apple logos on any of the games. It'd be like True. it'd be like it'd be like calling the Turbo Graphics the Hudson Soft Turbo Graphics. No one calls it that. They'll call it the, it's the NEC Turbo Graphics because NEC it's, built the things and they marketed the things. They sold the things. And so nobody same, calls nobody calls the Dreamcast the Microsoft Dreamcast, despite the fact. Well, that yeah, it's. yeah, <laughs> that's even it's even a uh, uh, it's yet another example. Uh, so I don't I don't get this this Apple Pippin. Like where where's that coming from? I don't know. But eh, the internet's going to internet, I guess. I just <laughs> hope people kind of look and make sense out of it. Anyway, uh, so yeah, the. Sometime around, oh geez, I can't even remember the exact time frame. I'm just gonna say twenty. Uh, shoot. Um, well, let me let me back up and go back to. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna throw out 2016. 2016 okay. uh, as the time when I picked up a Pippin for myself. I was on eBay and I found an unbelievable deal. I got a one of the rare U.S. Quote unquote, one of the I call it space gray, but they call them the black black pippins, mm-hmm. uh, intended for the U.S. market. Two hundred bucks on eBay, and I, I get it in the course of the description says, "Oh, this doesn't work." You know, I get it home, I open it up, uh, I physically open up the console. How come this doesn't work? Well, the first thing I find is a dead wasp inside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, hmm, gee, I wonder where this thing was kept. Uh, but. <laughs> Put it, put it back together, hook it up, and uh, after cleaning it out thoroughly on the insides, you know, clearing the bugs out of the system, as it were, uh, <laughs> fire it up, hook it up, hook it up to my TV, and it works just fine. So, yeah. okay, well, now, now, what can I do with this thing? I mean, it's it's a, it's it marries two things that you know are are uh, key to my growing up. You know, Max, the classic Mac OS, and video games. Well, the Pippin marries both of them together. Uh, so, okay, well, this is a this is a a video game Mac that plays Mac games, right? So I, I look around and, well, what games are there for this thing? Well, there's the obvious Super Marathon was the one that everyone, I think, associates with the system. Uh, and yeah, Super Marathon's nice, but, you know, I've, I've, I've played Marathon. I've played Marathon 2. I'm familiar with those games. They play better on a real Mac. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I want to mess around with that on this system. Uh, but there, there was other software developed for it too. You know, they they didn't mark Bondi didn't market it exclusively as a gaming system. They wanted it to be uh, something that you could use in 1996 to be your first gateway to the internet. 
Mm-hmm. And, and so encyclopedias and edutainment. Yeah, things, things like that. Yeah. And if, if you recall, like sometime around 96, 97, you know, Microsoft and Philips were trying to do the same thing with web TV. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, there was maybe an, another system like that that was these are these are you know internet appliances were things in Japan not so much yes. in the US but they didn't stop Bondi from trying anyway uh, one of these applications is something called peas uh, p e a s e like p p for pippin and then e so i guess, i don't know i don't know what the rationale behind the name was uh, it wasn't an acronym as far as i'm uh, as far as i know of but uh this it looked a lot like the at ease program if you're familiar with that yeah, that yeah. apple shipped on their performa line back in the 90s yeah, and the mac os wasn't simple enough <laughs> right yeah well they had to compete with you know what packard bell had with their navigator application i guess that shipped on those machines but um anyway this this peas application would uh, launch a number of built-in applications that shipped on the CD, the PCD. But if you connected the Pippin to an Apple Talk network through its serial port, mm-hmm. you could run applications hosted on another Mac. So, oh, this is interesting. Well, then I could play some games on the network that the Pippin otherwise isn't designed to run, like Prince of Persia runs great on the Pippin. Doom runs great on the Pippin, as it turns out. Well, it's just uh, an LC3. Uh, well, the, the Pippin hardware is uh, quite a bit more advanced than an LC3. Uh, uh, so what is it, Quadra? It's, no, even better than that. It's a Power Mac. Oh my goodness, it's a yeah, 601. It's, 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 it's a 603. So 603? It's, oh my if, god! Well, the, the 601 is a little bit better than the 603, if you yeah, can believe the it. The 603 is, is, the, is the low-end version of that. It was intended for laptops and things. Uh, yes, but it came out after this. I mean, just timing-wise, they must have sh- that must have just well, come off the die. Yeah, I mean, timing-wise, the Pippin came out around the same time as... Uh, the Power Mac 7500. In fact, I'm I'm convinced that it was even slightly based on the 7500 because mm. the 7500 and the Pippin, their display drivers have the same name. So mm. you know, it makes you wonder. Hmm. Dead who giveaway. borrowed from who? Yeah. Um, but I mean, the Pippin. You know that based on based on Power Mac hardware in 1996 packed a bit of a punch. It's yeah. got it's some decent hardware there. And in fact, the the video the video hardware Apple was just starting to do this with their video hardware. Uh, you don't get 3D acceleration. I mean, they weren't that forward thinking. No. But games that run in 8-bit mode, you do get page flipping. You can get double buffering. So that is at least something. Now, at mm. the time, Macs didn't really do that. Certainly not the low-end 68K Mac. So this was this was something, you know, they're throw, they're trying to throw a bone to game developers here. That, yeah, no, this that's is, probably this very is on, hard, but they, they tried. It's on par with like a, an, it's faster than an N64 chip, I believe. Uh, that's N64, also a risk processor. The N64, I believe, was clocked somewhere around 90 megahertz. The Pippin was clocked around 66. Oh. So I, okay, it was, it was clocked faster than the PlayStation. I'll give you that. Derf, oh, but, certainly, certainly. Yeah, but the PlayStation also had a little bit of a hardware assist, a little yeah. bit more, the, the RAM was support. faster, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, and not to mention developer support. Who, Nelly, <laughs> can I can I get into that? But um, anyway, back to the Pippin. I saw that this was running some some interesting games. And like, yeah, well, it's a real shame that you know games like Doom didn't ship on this system. You know, it might have might have uh, been a might have been a contender. Uh, <laughs> but you know, Mar- Marathon is great, but Marathon wasn't exactly a household name in 1995, sure. 96. You know, we you wanted things like Quake. You've got to have Quake on your system. Mm. Um, so I thought, well, 
how how come nobody actually did this or how come you know in 2017 there's there's no homebrew for Pippin what's going on here so I, I dug into it a little bit and uh, saw okay well the the reason why there's no homebrew is because the the Pippin implemented an anti I. I can't call it anti-piracy because you can you can pirate Pippin games till the cows come home. But what it did was it was an anti. It was protection against unauthorized games being released for the system. Similar yeah, it's a publisher protection. Publisher protection. Thank you. Yeah. So similar to what Nintendo did with the NES and uh, with what Atari did with the seventy eight hundred, which is actually mm-hmm. a, a great example, is what Atari did with the seventy eight hundred. Uh, every game is signed by a private key within Apple, similar to Atari. Every game had to be signed by the manufacturer with a digest embedded into the game that was checked against, uh, checked by, I should say, a public key embedded in every console. And if they tried to verify the signature and it didn't match, well, we're not booting up your game because we don't know who signed this. It Mm -hmm. wasn't us, so we're not going to let you play. Uh, Apple did this mostly, I believe, because uh, the Pippin retailed for about $599 in 1996, which mm. compared to the PlayStation, it's obvious why the Pippin didn't do so well in the market. I mean, no, that, that's com- the same price as CDI. Well, e- even even th- CDI and 3DO are two good examples, too. I mean, imagine imagine you're a gamer in 1996. No, it's too expensive. I'm not arguing it. it's not yeah, too expensive. Yeah, it's like I can buy this $600 machine that can play Marathon, or I can yeah. buy this $200 machine that can play Jumping Flash. It can play Tomb Raider. It can play yeah, all yeah, these yeah. other things. It's, I mean, it just yeah, it, the, it didn't exist obvious. in a vacuum. My, yeah, my, my yeah. point is that it's not the only $600 CD console. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely true. But even at six hundred dollars, this was way, way, way less expensive than Apple's lowest end Power Mac at the time, and Apple was worried about this uh, uh, to the point that they they had rules with the Pippin project that any licensee of the Pippin, and in '96, I believe this was only Bondi, but I think they had a, a couple other parties interested. But any licensee of the Pippin was forbidden from doing a number of things. They they couldn't they couldn't mention uh, the Macintosh and any of their marketing. So it, it didn't run Mac OS. It ran Pippin OS, yeah. not Mac OS, Pippin OS. Uh, and the, the, I believe in the, uh, the manuals, I don't think I'd have to go back and check, but I remember it, at least in a number of the tech notes and some of the developer things, they don't mention Apple computer. They, mm. They're credited as ACI. <laughs> Technology by ACI. Hmm. Yeah. Gee, I wonder who they are. Uh, anyway, th- th- this is all because Apple was just super paranoid that yeah, well, people Apple were going to buy clones. Pippins as cheap Macs. Yeah. Well, this, Apple has this, clones at this time. Like, right, right. The, the clone <laughs> effort was just getting off the ground. And Apple was scared, really, that people are going to make better clones than, than Apple was on their own machines. Rightfully so. And so they said, okay, well, sure, we'll do this Pippin thing, but it's not allowed to run Macintosh software. So hence this this protection at every boot of the Pippin to make sure that you're not trying to run Microsoft Word on your Pippin, you know, trying to <laughs> play this on your TV. You're not running Photoshop on this thing. No, well, the, Apple the doesn't let you. Well, the Pippin did have a keyboard. Pippin did have a keyboard. It didn't have one in the box, but you no, could... You could get one. 
Uh, you could you could get well the U.S. the U.S. model. Some of the U.S. model bundles did have a keyboard in the box, but the majority of the Pippins out there are the 1.0 uh, models in the white case that shipped on the Japanese market. So and I'm those, sorry to rush you along. It, it's my own fault for for constantly derailing you because I love this topic. We but, can edit this, right? <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, we we don't even edit them. But the long shot, uh, you cracked the Pippin. Right, right. So um, long story short. I, I saw what was going on in the homebrew scene, nothing, and thought, well, it's been 20 plus years since the system came out and nobody has cracked it yet. And I thought, well, I've done I've done a bit of work on, you know, some some I've done a little bit of Mac OS work. I work with um, Josh Duran, uh, Josh Duran uh, yeah. in on the, the advanced Mac substitute project. I've helped him out with that a little bit. So I've, I've got a little bit of a background in classic Mac OS API programming. So I thought, well, if if nobody has done this yet, then who better to give it a shot than me? <laughs> so uh, I start start digging into it with my friends uh, Josh and in uh, and Elliot Nunn is another uh, buddy of mine who has done some work in reverse engineering the Mac ROMs. Um, so we start digging into the startup process of the Pippin, and it's it's very very similar to that of an actual Mac, except for a notable change, which is uh, right after it senses that you have a CD-ROM inserted, it takes a look at uh, six, one, one fixed location at the very beginning of the disk that contains the directory information, and then five randomly chosen 128K blocks across the disk. So this, this makes up about a little bit over a megabyte of, of space that it checks digest against a list of digested locations in in the disk and that suffices as a system signature check and if it if it doesn't work it spits out the disk you can't play it so i'm i'm digging into this digging in this in the rom looking at the looking at the roms and of course i i got the rom dumps because i ran a rom dumper using the peas utility i just mentioned so that allowed me to actually get the roms to to actually look at them and i dig into here and i start looking through some of this some of this code, which, by the way, is is hard to read without symbols. I mean, Apple didn't make this easy, <laughs> but I, I start deriving some of this, and I'm looking at some of some of the code that kind of does a lot of shifts and XORs and the number of magic numbers it's adding to it. It's like, oh, these these numbers look interesting. Let me let me plug it into Google and see what comes out. Oh, these are the magic numbers for the MD5 digest algorithm. Oh, that's curious. <laughs> well, oh, that's interesting. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and I uh, even Apple in their own tech notes mentioned that yeah, the Pippin uses an RSA crypto system to oh. to implement security. Oh well, thank you, thank you, Apple for for letting me know oh. that. Um, RSA was I think the patents have since run out on RSA, but the RSA group has also published a reference implementation for RSA. And so I, I grabbed that and I took a look at the C code versus kind of the C code that I had decompiled myself by hand. And I'm noticing a lot of similarities. Copy paste. Hmm. I think we existed. hit, I think we hit pay dirt on this. And so <laughs> from that point, it's like, all right, I think I know what we're working with here. So we kind of work backwards and I, if, if we had more time, I could go into like the nitty gritty technical details, but I wrote it up uh, in a couple of blog posts on my website, blitter.net, if you're interested. There you uh, go. But essentially what, what I wound up doing was I extracted what it did for the, uh, the signature check into just a tiny block of code that 
I ran in just an isolated 68K emulator. This is 68K, by the way. Yeah, the, yeah, entire, yeah. the entire boot process of the Pippin, despite being a Power Mac, is all emulated. 68K. It's Absolutely. running 68K code because Apple couldn't port that in time. So I isolate all this code and run it into a little 68K emulator, providing stubs for the nine toolbox traps into Apple's ROM that it uses. And uh, I, I wound up finding um, uh, these these areas of memory where... During the part of the code where I imagined it was doing the meat of the work, it had this like this little uh, this hundred and no, it was forty five bytes of data that just looked like gibberish to me. But then after it was all done, it zeroed all of it out. Like, hmm, huh. why is it zeroing that out? It must be something important. Forty five bytes. Hmm, forty five bytes. Forty five times eight. Three hundred and sixty. 360-bit key, perhaps? Ah. Hmm. So I, yeah. I I went backwards and then went back to the digest file that's on the CD, which is easily accessible. Pop it in any Mac and just copy the file. Uh, and then looked at it and thought, okay, this looks like it could be a signature area. Let me just try decoding it with this 360-bit block of memory that I found while kind of emulating the, the Pippin security. Pater. That was that's awesome. That was that was the public key, and with with computing power being what it is now, you know, you plug the public key into something like uh, NSAVE, you know, an oh, open yeah. source yeah. factoring program. Eighteen hours later, I had a private key, so now I'm I can. It took that long. Yeah, well, <laughs> all I've got is like a little Intel NUC. That's just my personal oh. PC. So no, I mean, no, I'm, no I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> I was I was prepared to run it for weeks, but hey, it was done eighteen hours later. I'm like, okay, well, these are the keys to the Pippin Kingdom, I guess. Let's what what can we do now? Well, I. I have I have a a tiny utility that can burn my own homebrew disk, but it's it is not ready for release. In fact, it uses it uses uh, some code that I probably shouldn't be using in it that I probably should reimplement myself. So I'll probably do that uh, someday. But in the meantime, uh, I had folks coming out of the woodwork on Twitter after my announcement saying, "Oh, this is so great! I can finally port my my hypercard visual novels to a real console." <laughs> <laughs> That's so terrific. I'm like, "All right, well, I wasn't thinking of that, but sure." So I uh, I took a I took a couple weeks and put together a bootloader, which I call Pippin Kickstart. Yes. And uh, it works a lot like Swap Magic, where you you boot the Pippin from this disk, and then it fires up and identifies itself, tells you, "Hey, you're running ROM version one point whatever," and here's how much RAM I detected in your system. So even if you're not looking to boot anything with it, it's a great diagnostic tool. Uh, but you fire it up, it ejects itself, and then you can put in whatever CD you want, as long as it's got a bootable system folder. It'll it'll try booting from it. All and right. My question now. It- the natural question I have is, how many ROMs are there for the Pippin? Uh, how many known ROMs? Uh, I I know of at least five, because uh, those are the five I have personally preserved and dumped myself. There are the three retail ROMs. There's 1.0, which is by far and away the most common that you will find. They're the ones that are in the Pippins with a white case. Those are the so Japanese we, ones. Oh, the Japanese ones. Okay. Yes. And yes. You, those you've, are all dumped, you've dumped both of the Pippins we had at the museum, right? Uh, yes, the, the black one has ROM 1.2, which all U.S. Pippins, uh, ship with at least 1.2. Okay. Uh, and then the, the white ones have, uh, either version 1.0 or, uh, if you have a Pippin dev kit, they oh. have what's called the, the GM, what's known as the GM flash ROM. And GM, I believe, stands for Gold Master. And it's, it's the same as the 1.0 ROM, except it's tweaked so that it'll boot from whatever. You know, for dev kits, yeah. If, if you're testing your games, you can't be signing your builds every time. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's the GM Flash, and those are 
Eh, not as not as common. I mean, everything's right. relative, right? Pippins are not exactly common anyway. But uh, as far as if you find a Pippin that isn't retail, it's more than likely going to have a GM Flash ROM in it. Gotcha. Uh, That's funny the, because the 3DO just has a switch on the back. They literally put a toggle on the back. <laughs> oh, wouldn't it be nice if everybody did it that way? <laughs> <laughs> anybody who's anybody can make games. That'd be great. Um, uh, but, but, okay, so the one that we have, we have the one with the crack in it, and then we have the other one that I got from Mac Home Journal back in the day. Was the right, both of, the, both of them are the U.S. model, and both of them have the 1.2. Yep. So that box that we have, that big white box with the encyclopedia and all that crap on it, that's the standard box that they shipped in? For the U.S. ones, yes. Yep. Interesting. It doesn't look like a video game console box. It's it's a huge box. Yeah, I mean, I, I I expect, you know, when you get a video game console, like, for example, the N64 came in something that... You know, you can put on a shelf. It's like right? a briefcase. It's like yeah, a big, yeah. big briefcase it's thing with a handle. The base, the base bundle, right? The base yeah. option. It's just the console and like maybe a pack-in controller. Maybe, maybe they expect you to buy the game separate, right? Um, uh, Jaguar, same way. NES, same way. Yeah, it's something you can easily put on a shelf and display. Pippin, not so much. It's it's a computer box. It's a cube. Yeah. Oh, it is. It reminds yeah. me of a CRT box, a small yeah. CRT box. Yeah. Even though the system itself is. Smaller than an original Xbox, even like it's mm-hmm. it's a very petite little system, but ships in this gigantic box for some reason. I don't know. Bond yeah, it's filled with <laughs> cardboard, and then they, yeah. they did that keyboard thing. What is the deal with that flip open keyboard thing? Because there's a picture of it on the side of the box. I never actually had any software that used it except for typing in words in the encyclopedia. I have never used it for anything other than the keyboard. I think it's supposed to be also a drawing tablet, but I don't have, and the museum doesn't have either the stylus it's missing the stylus so i mean it shouldn't need uh i mean is the stylus something that was connected to it or was it just a capacity uh, stylus or i don't know i as oh. i it could be something as simple as just like a plastic stylus like what was used with the newtons yeah i'll bet a newton works hey, come on newton stylus has to work with could it. be but again what software works with it i don't know well, that, i haven't that's that's the other question i was going to ask is like what's interesting that you can be like First off, is there anything interesting that has been run on Pippin since you cracked it? And second off, what are your favorite Pippin titles, especially the weird ones? Uh, well, I'm a little biased. My my favorite Pippin title uh, was never released for the system. It's the Journeyman Project Pegasus oh, of Prime. <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll have Tommy on to talk about. Journeyman. Yeah, and, and Tommy could better speak to actually the history of the Pippin Project and how it actually came to be because he was there. Yeah, like right. I was... I, I was I was in elementary school at the time, yeah. so that definitely definitely not the one to ask. But uh, as far as anything technical, definitely ask me about Pippin stuff. Um, but as far as that, uh, obviously Marathon. I'm a big fan of the Marathon series. Um, so that's the one that I referenced before that Bungie couldn't figure out how to get the platform to reboot an application. <laughs> um, yeah the 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 Pippin port of Super Marathon was. The project at Bungie that I don't think anybody wanted to work on. Um, I think they, I think they threw uh, Jason Regier on that project as kind of a hazing ritual <laughs> because it was, it was like nobody really wants to work on this system, mm-hmm. and you know, it was they were they were straight, they were more or less straight ports. I mean, they they had to change the. Um, it changed some ways about the ga- the way the game works. Like, for example, the terminals. When you look at the many terminals inside the game, they had to bump up the font size if they were readable on CRTs. Okay. I mean, you're not running these on VGA monitors anymore. So, you know, double the font size so that you could see that without flicker or whatever. Oh, man, and then, like, Durandal, like, has lots of text. It does. It does, definitely. Very story-heavy story game. Uh, and even even with all the changes, like, they still had to cut things from the game to make it 
to squeeze it into what little RAM the Pippin has because the Pippin ships with six megs of RAM on board. One meg of that is reserved for video, so the OS never sees it, no matter what. And of the remaining five megs, like you've got like a meg and a half that the OS itself uses. So you've got three and a half megs left over to squeeze your game into. That's more than a PlayStation. That's true, but um, you also have to contend with, you know, Mac, um, excuse me, Pippin OS doing whatever it does and needing whatever additional resources it needs. So things like music, had had to be cut. Yeah. No music and no music in Super Marathon. Even if you add memory, it's like nope. Sorry, That's we crazy. just we just never did. And uh, in fact, there's um, you can look you can look you can Google for this on um, correspondence between fans and uh, Alex Rosenberg, who also worked on this project. Bungie tried really hard. They wanted to get the they wanted to get a keyboard. They wanted to add keyboard support, but Bandai Apple just refused to send them one. It's like. <laughs> But but if you send us one, we'll add support for it. Like no, no, sorry. Yeah, it's probably that's probably a Bandai thing. Just like <laughs> could it's be. Like it's like Japanese you... companies not thinking other companies in the world exist. Yeah, or it's like, do you want this to be a success? I mean, right? No, no. Well, Apple bunch, is always hard to get tried. stuff at. Yeah, that's it's the 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 failure of the Pippin can be attributed to a number of things. But one of the things that that you can point to is that uh, Apple. Apple built the platform, but they wanted to delegate the responsibility to third parties, to licensees. So if you're a developer for Pippin and you needed developer support, um, if you went to Apple, Apple would say, you got to go to Bondi. <laughs> so you'd go to Bondi and Bondi would say, we don't know, you got to go to Apple. And you would just get the runaround. And so, oh, <laughs> and so ultimately what, what developers would do would, would be they would call friends that they knew inside Apple that, you know, had some downtime or whatever mm-hmm. that could that could kind of under the table slip them some information. Not the way to garner developer support for your nascent platform, for sure. No. And then at the time, it's interesting talking about Bungie developing for it at the time, because no matter how much they wanted to do it, at this time, they're knee-deep in myth, and Alex and Jason had to be starting on Halo. Like, they're laying oh. down the foundation to Halo in 96. Oh, I mean, Super Marathon was... It, I mean, calling it an afterthought is being generous. I mean, everybody yeah. everybody was needed on other projects. I, I'm amazed that it got out the door. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, if it if it had not gone out the door, I think the Pippin would be known for racing days. Which <laughs> it isn't a bad game, but it's no marathon. And it certainly no. doesn't have the cult following uh, associated with the Bungie name. That, mm-hmm. that it certainly has now. I mean, the last time that I saw Super Marathon being offered up on eBay, this is to tell you just how, how rabid the Bungie fans are. Uh, Super Marathon copy with the box, just the, even just the CD, I would imagine, would fetch a pretty penny, but with the box, $1,500. Oh, my God. For a Pippin game. <laughs> but, I mean, if you look at collectibles and you look at, like, Golden Ages and stuff, this is the Bungie Golden Age, and if you're going to collect Bungie, this is the time to do it because it is when all of... The important people are still there. They're still invested. Right. I mean, Doug Zartman's doing the voice for Bob and right. Jason and Alex are still cutting code. And, right. You know. And it's it's got historical significance, too, because if you if you ask, you know, the average Halo player, hey, what was what was Bungie's first uh, multiplayer console FPS? What do you think they say? They probably say Halo. But no, no, it's Super Marathon. Do they? I mean, do they say that? Because honestly, the only time I ever hear modern gamers mentioned in Halo, uh, Marathon is they're like, oh, it's a prequel to Halo, right? Like they have this whole iceberg right, but, thing. About right, but when, when when you mention Halo, like most people don't think of it as a console FPS. 
but mm. it did ship on Pippin, and Pippin is a console. I mean, you mean you mean Marathon? You just said Halo. Oh, ma- Marathon. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, yeah. Marathon. Exactly. No, they do not think yeah. of Marathon as a console. Yeah, so, yeah absolutely true. Absolutely. I mean, you, I, I, if I had a nickel for every time I mentioned the Pippin to somebody, who's like, I've never even heard of this. Oh, of course never, not. I didn't know Apple made a video game system <laughs> or a video the, game platform. But I, one of the things you pointed out before about the price, I think it really is – a lot of people look at this and go, what the hell was Apple thinking? But at the time, this was the model. There were there were a number of companies doing this and they were delegating authority of the console's maintenance and development to other people, right? Like 3 right. whole thing was we're going to do the console, but you guys are going to make the – you know imp- fight on implementation of the hardware, which <laughs> was never any money in the hardware in a console right. to begin with. Right, and Apple tried to position themselves where it looked favorable to developers. Like at the time, Nintendo and Sega were demanding – a bit of a hefty royalty. Oh, absolutely. From every, from every game sold. And Apple is like, nah, we're, we just want a, a flat three bucks yeah. or something like that. Something, something ridiculously low. It's like, we really want you guys to, to put games out. Well, what happens when you make, you know, something like that low it like that is that you get the shovelware. Yeah, so. certainly. And, and it's solving the wrong problem. Honestly. I mean, the, the reason Nintendo had those high fees was to stop shovelware. Right, right. I mean, Atari back in the day, they didn't ask for any royalties. No. Well, they thought that <laughs> yeah. they locked out the console with 1976 well, standard, you know. That's true. Yeah. Technology. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just make a special cartridge connector that only we make and nobody else can make it. Well, they we also they can't. <laughs> they also thought that device was only going to play Pong in combat. And like, that's it. They didn't design yeah. it to do anything else. Right. I mean, they, Atari sold that system for 15 years. Uh-huh. They discontinued the 2600 in 1992. Mm-hmm. I it's it's the only console I can think of that has spanned three decades. <laughs> I remember production. early issues of like GamePro and EGM include Atari coverage. And yeah. It's like at the yeah. tail end, right? Like, right. like oh, look, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark just came out. <laughs> I mean, props to them. There was, I don't, I don't know of any uh, mainstream or at least uh, popular game magazines from the mid 90s that gave the pip in the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> no, they certainly did not. But yeah. But thank you for coming on here and giving it the light of day to all of our listeners, Keith. And thank you for mm-hmm. all of the wonderful work you've done over the years to the music. Sure thing. I will wax poetic about Pippin internals all day long if anyone's there to listen. <laughs> that's the, Well, that's kind of the problem. I don't know that anybody ever asked. <laughs> well, you asked, and <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> well, thank you, Keith. And uh, please keep, keep the Pippin alive. I will try. No one else is. <laughs> and we're back. So that was a great, uh, very long chat. Uh, thank you so much, Keith, for coming on the show and talking with us, uh, talking with Alex about your experiences. Covered a lot of ground there. We're going to have to cut this a bit short because we've already run way over our allotted time. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you've got any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our patron supporters who keep the made afloat. Patron donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming servers, and we'll continue that with future episodes every week. Till then, I'm Chun. I'm Anthony. And I'm Miles. Thanks, we'll see you next time.